Welcome to the Holy Bible Study for Genesis chapter 24. We're drawing near the end of the narrative of Abraham here, and we're going to begin the narrative of his son Isaac. While Abraham is still alive, he is sending one of his servants to take a wife for his son Isaac from their own people, from the land where Abraham was originally from. And that's pretty much what this chapter is going to be all about. It's going to be about Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and how she was discovered for him, how God had chose her for him, and how she was going to be brought back to him in the land he was dwelling with his father currently. So let's just jump right into it. As always, God bless y'all, and Godspeed. Today as we read in verse 1, Abraham is old well stricken in age and the lord had blessed abraham in all things and truly if you follow along with every bible study up until this point from the time we first met abraham the lord has blessed him abundantly and he has become a mighty man in the region a well-known man a very rich man and he in egypt acquired much cattle and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and we're going to find just how well equipped he is with with so many things when we find one of his servants he's going to send away in this chapter and he takes 10 camels with him so abraham wasn't some poor man of God that nobody knew about. He was well known in the region. He was well off. And he had so much that he had enough to send his traveling servant with 10 camels. So just think about that. Most people in that day and age were lucky if they had one. And Abraham just sent his servant with 10. Even though he was only going to pick up one person. So he would really only need two. Um, speaking of two, we're in verse 2. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray you, your hand under my thigh. Alright, first thing we want to notice here is his eldest servant, the one who was Abraham's right-hand man, whom he had put in charge of everything under him. And you know from past Bible studies that the name of that servant is Eliezer. So even though he's not mentioned here by name, we know exactly who it was from past chapters. So he tells Eliezer to make a vow to him here. And that's what it means when he says, put your hand under my thigh. In the Middle East in those days, that was a custom in which you would make an oath to someone else. You would put your hand under their thigh. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. His son here is obviously Isaac. And the reason he doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite is going to be clear as we go further in the Holy Bible. And as I've already explained in past Bible studies, they were godless people. Um, they weren't God's chosen people, obviously, for a reason, and that's why Abraham's seed was going to possess their land in the future. That's why God was gifting Abraham and his seed 
their land because they were a holy, immoral people. Um, they were sacrificing their children to false gods by burying their children alive. Uh, they were rapists and murderers, and, and the list goes on and on of just how abominable the Canaanites were. So there was no way that Abraham was going to have his son marry one of their daughters. And on top of that, like I said, reading further in the Bible, as we further learn the nature of God, he speaks about um, he doesn't want the children of Israel to take wives from the people around them, from the people that were surrounding Israel, which today we'd know as the Arabs or the Muslims. Back then, they worshipped many gods. The Arabs were worshipped 360 gods, which was a god for every day of their year. And so Allah, today, the god of the Muslims, was just one of those many 360 gods. He is known as the warrior god, the moon god. That's why you'll find the symbol of Islam today is the crescent moon, because that was the symbol of Allah, the warrior god, moon god, back then, in the days of the Arabs, before Muhammad ever propped him up as the so-called supreme god of Islam. Um, but God said, don't take a daughter from them, because what they're going to do is, when your son is very attracted to them and would be willing to do anything for them in order to gain their love, in order to gain, you know, their sexual relations, that the daughters would corrupt the men of Israel by um, getting them to worship the gods of their lands, whether it be the god of the Canaanites or Amorites or Amalekites, etc., etc., God said, their daughters will defile your sons and get them to worship their gods through, you know, the women seducing the men of Israel. And we find that Solomon, King Solomon, King of Israel, actually fell victim to that because among the many wives that he had taken, which God didn't instruct him to take, he took wives from other ethnicities and other you know, Middle Eastern tribes that were not of the Jews, that were not Hebrews. And they led him astray to worship false gods. And he would um, be punished for that. So that's one of the main reasons here why God put it on Abraham's heart to take a wife from Abraham's own people and not from the Canaanites, which currently dwelt in that land that Abraham was at now. Okay, verse 4, But you, Eliezer, shall go unto my country, and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. Now, obviously, Abraham's country is going to be the land of Israel, which at this time, like I said, the land he's dwelling in is called Canaan. It will not be called the land of the children of Israel. It will not be called Israel until the Jews and Hebrews actually come into that land and are led there by Moses and Joshua, etc. And then obviously then we get into the days of the kings of David and Solomon and so on and so forth. But until then, it's called the land of Canaan. So his country, where Abraham's sending Eliezer, is his original country, where he came from uh, with his father. If you remember... Terah. And remember, he had a brother, Nahor. We're going to read about Nahor in this chapter here. 
So that's where he's sending Eliezer to, is to his former country, where he originally dwelt before God said, get you unto this country, I'm going to show you the land of Canaan, because I'm going to give it to you and your seed in the future. Just so nobody gets confused here, he's going back to his original land where he dwelt with his father, Terah. Okay, so we were in verse 5. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I need to bring your son again unto the land from where you came? Now, Abraham does not want Isaac to go back to his original homeland out of fear that maybe, you know, the wife that Isaac takes will keep him there. Even though God obviously is God, if he promised your son's going to inherit this land and your son's sons are going to inherit this land, God would obviously find a way to bring Isaac back. But Abraham here has learned from his past mistakes of, of trying to, you know, bring about God's promises in his own way. Now, at his old age, he knows better, and he's going to do everything in his power to make sure he doesn't interfere with God's will, that he lets God's will play out perfectly, and he's going to leave Isaac right where he's at in this land that God promised to him and to Isaac so that he will not hamper God letting Isaac inherit this land. So Abraham here is going to tell Eliezer, no, you're not going to bring my son back to his homeland. You're going to leave him right here. That's why I'm sending you, Eliezer. You're my right-hand man. You're going to go get his wife, and you're going to bring her back. But he's not going with you. He's never going there. And we read that in verse 6, where he says, Abraham said unto him, Beware you that you bring not my son there again. The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto your seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife unto my son from there. And if the woman will not be willing to follow you, then you shall be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son there again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master, and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, unto the city of Nahor. So again, that's where Abraham was originally from, Mesopotamia. And obviously Nahor was either named after Abraham's brother or... It was um, named Nahor before his brother, and then his father Terah just named Nahor after the city where they dwelt. So that is where Eliezer is heading. Again, he's taking ten camels, so obviously Abraham had a lot of cattle to spare. Verse 11, and he made his camels to kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the time of the evening. Even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray you, send me good speed this day, and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Now we know that Eliezer wasn't a Hebrew Jew. 
like Abraham. He was one of Abraham's servants that Abraham had acquired. So this just goes to show that even back in the day, um, God was making converts of every people, tribe, nation, and tongue through his children. And we're going to find that throughout the Old Testament, that what are known as Gentiles, whether at that time they were Arabs or whether they were African, whoever, Ethiopian, that once they came to faith in the true God of heaven and earth, who at that time was known as Yahweh, that's our Father in heaven, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, once they put their faith in Him, their old lives and their old standing in the world, which would, in God's eyes, be known as the heathen, the godless heathen, they then can become servants of God, essentially children of God, because by putting their faith in Yahweh in those days, they were putting their faith in His future promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when Jesus uh, says that He set the captives free, what that means is, is when He had died on the cross before He resurrected, He went down into Hades, which at that time there was a a good side, which is called the, the comfort side, Abraham's bosom, and then there was the hell side. And then after Jesus rose from the dead and rescued everyone that was in Abraham's bosom, including, you know, obviously all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, you had King David, I'm sure all the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Jesus rescued all them from Abraham's bosom, which was the good side, the comfort side of Hades, and brought them up to heaven when he rose from the dead. And then at that time, the other side of Hades, called Hell, or Gehenna, uh, remained. So to this day, it's still just Hell. Um, but at that time, in, in the Old Testament time, there was two different parts of the afterlife. Which, you know, obviously we think just, you know, all the Old Testament prophets, they went right to heaven. All the Old Testament patriarchs went right to heaven. That's not true because God can't dwell in the presence of sin. And until Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and bore their sins for them, they had to, you know, wait to enter God's presence because he can't dwell in the presence of sin. Okay, I don't want to get too far off this subject here. But um, let's see where we left off at. Oh, I'm getting back to the reason Eliezer again, was praying here to the God of Abraham was because Abraham, through being around Eliezer as much as he was, had told Eliezer, look, you're part of my household. Uh, you've been circumcised with me and my household as a child of Yahweh, as a servant of Yahweh, so you're going to serve him now. You're not going to serve your old false gods from wherever you came before. You're going to serve my God as long as you remain in my house. And so this shows that Eliezer wasn't doing that just because he had to, but he actually truly had come to faith in and believed in the God of Abraham because it says here he prayed to the Lord God of Abraham. He beseeched him to help him. He's asking for God's help here. He's saying, God, my God, my Lord, help me find this woman that is going to become the wife of your chosen seed, Isaac, the son of of my master, Abraham. He says, I pray you send me good speed this day, or good fortune. 
and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down your pitcher, I pray you, that I may drink. And she shall, she shall say, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. Let that same woman be she that you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that you have showed kindness unto my master Abraham. And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, that, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. Real quick, want to break this down. So Rebekah was of the same family as Abraham because Nahor, again, was Abraham's brother. They were both sons of Terah. And Rebekah was born to Nahor's son, Bethuel, through Milcah. So again, she is part of the family. And so God is keeping his patriarchs with the line of the Jews, the line of the Hebrews. Whereas we're going to find going forward, um, men of God or children of God that rebel against him take wives of the children of other gods. Uh, for instance, I believe it's Esau, who is going to be one of Isaac's sons, actually. He is going to take a daughter from the land surrounding um, Canaan, the, which we would later know as Israel. So he was going to take a wife of, of a daughter that worshipped a god other than Yahweh, who worshipped false gods. And I believe that's why Esau, uh, it says God hated him, and he loved Jacob. Because Esau, throughout his life, basically despised all that was godly, all that was of God. All that God had blessed him with, he despised. And so God took all of that and gave it to Jacob. And so Esau, throughout his life, um, you know, just did very many ungodly things. And so that's a good lesson for us today, that no matter how beautiful a woman is, or no matter how handsome you think a man is, if they don't know the Lord... If you're a Christian and you're attracted to a Muslim woman, if you're a Christian woman and you're attracted to a Muslim man, and you say, oh, well, you know, our, yes, our faiths, our religions, quote-unquote, are different, but, you know, I love him, he loves me, and everything will be gravy. No, it won't, because he doesn't believe the same holy book we do. He doesn't live by the same moral laws that we do. So his God says he can beat you if you don't have sex with him. He can beat you if you don't have dinner on the table. He can kill your daughter on the front porch and slit her throat if he finds out she was dating a Christian or a Jewish man. So it's not going to work, just like it didn't work in the Old Testament. You can't, I don't want to say it's in the book of Amos, it's possible, it's one of the other 16 Old Testament prophets, but it says, can two walk together lest they be agreed? The answer is no. No, you can't. Black and white uh, don't mix. Uh, light and dark don't mix. There are just certain things that are plain as day. You have righteous and wicked, holy and unholy, right and wrong. And you can't mix the two. There's no gray area. 
And so God's saying, look, my children cannot be mixed with the heathen because the heathen will deceive them to do immoral, ungodly things that I've commanded them not to do, and they will in turn go and worship false gods. So you got to stay true to your faith. If you're going to find a husband or a wife, you got to pick them from your same faith or at least from the same God. So if you're a Christian and you want to marry a Jew or if you're a Jew and you want to marry a Christian, at least we have the same Father in heaven. And Lord willing, the Jewish member from being a husband or a wife to a Christian will eventually come to knowledge of the truth and accept that Jesus was their Messiah, was their Savior, sent by Yahweh to reconcile them unto him, poor sinners that they are. But any anything else, Buddhist, Hindu, um, Islamist, uh, atheist, a Christian cannot marry any of them. I don't care if it's, like I said, the most handsome man on the planet or the most beautiful woman on the planet. It's not going to work. It's going to end in divorce or it's going to end bad for one or the other. Because God does not approve of it. He will not bless such a relationship. And St. Paul, if you don't believe me, read St. Paul's writings in the Old in the New Testament. He says everything I'm saying, believers should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? He goes down the list, giving the same examples I've been giving you. So if you don't trust me, trust St. Paul. Don't be unequally yoked. If you're going to marry someone, make sure it's a believer, else the marriage is not going to end well. And it's not going to last till your last breath like you think it will. Okay, I don't want to get again too far off the subject. So, we left off at verse 15. We find that Rebecca is a descendant from Nahor, Abraham's brother. So she's obviously, this is the one that God is sending Eliezer to get. Verse 16, the damsel was very fair to look upon. So again, like Sarah, Sarai, Abraham's wife, she was a knockout. She was a gorgeous girl, a virgin. Neither had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray you, drink a little water of your pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also, until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough, and ran again into the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, held his peace, to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, after the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight, and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, I pray you, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. She said moreover unto him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. See, here he knew when he heard the name Nahor, he knows that that's Abraham's brother. So he knew that the Lord had led him to the exact right girl. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, God of my master Abraham, who has not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth, 
I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. And Rebekah had a brother, and his name was Laban. And Laban ran out unto the man, unto the well. Now Laban, the name's going to sound familiar if you're familiar with the Holy Bible. He's actually going to appear in the life of Jacob. Because Jacob is actually going to marry Laban's daughters. So again, Jacob's going to marry someone who is also descendant from um, Terah, Nahor, etc., Abraham's original household, Abraham's original family. So God's keeping them with their own people for good reason. And it came to pass when he saw the earring and bracelets upon his sister's hands, and when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister, saying, Thus spake the man unto me, that he came unto the man, and behold, he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, you blessed of the Lord. Wherefore stand you outside? For I have prepared the house and room for the camels. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the men's feet that were with him. Now, real quick, Laban. If you know his character, he was kind of a greedy man, as we're going to find going forward in the life of Jacob. And don't think that he was just saying, oh, oh, please come in, you, you blessed of the Lord, because you're a servant of Abraham, and we all love Abraham so much. Laban here, if you notice, God makes clear why Laban was so just gung-ho to say, oh, please, please, sir, come into the house. Come, come, we're going to do all this for you. It's because in verse 30... Laban saw the earring and the bracelets upon his sister's hand. So he saw the wealth that this man Eliezer had brought along with him. Because again, there was gold and, and silver. Actually, I think it was just all gold at this point. She had a gold earring, uh, gold bracelets, and yeah, 10 shekels weight of gold, half shekel weight of gold. So he just saw nothing but gold in his eyes, and cha-ching, he's like, all right, come on in, sir, you who bear a lot of gold. So that's why Laban was so gung-ho about letting this guy in. And verse 32, the man came unto the house, and he ungirded his camels, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the men's feet that were with him. And there was set meat before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And he said, Speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. And the Lord has blessed my master greatly. And he has become great. And he has given me flocks. Excuse me. The Lord has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and med servants and maidservants and camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare son to my master when she was old. And unto him... Has he given all that he has? And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go unto your father's house, excuse me, unto my father's house, and to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son. And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you, and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son and my kindred and of my father's house. Real quick, verse 40, uh, we find he's repeating, obviously, what 
had taken place between him and Abraham earlier. And I wanted to touch on this earlier and I forgot, so I'm glad it was repeated. Notice here that he says that God will send his angel with you. Now, growing up in the Catholic faith, you know, we were taught about guardian angels and this and that. Now, yes, they have some some biblical doctrines that they follow, but this day and age, um, you know, they've gotten pretty far away from the Holy Bible. They teach a lot of unbiblical things, and I cover a lot of that in my new book, uh, The Coming Signs of Our Times, when I kind of compare the Roman Catholic Church to Mystery Babylon. And I give you about 20 pages of reasons why. Um, but yeah, so they were the first one that put the the um, idea of guardian angel in my head. But it is true, there really is a guardian angel for every human being. Because if you read in the book of Psalms, it also says that God sends his angels before us to guard us in all our ways. So it is true. We each, every, each and every single one of us have an angel. And now we each don't have our own demon. You know, you see those little cartoons where you have the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other. Uh, that's not true. We may have or have had many demons, but they're not with us always. They can be rebuked. Like if you remember, Jesus said, it's just like when you're cleaning a house. You know, you clean the house, you get all the dirt out, and then next thing you know, um, the house a week later is 10 times dirtier than it was before. Because he was saying that, you know, yeah, we'll clean out these 10 demons, but then another 10 with 10 more with them, more powerful, will come in unless the person is truly converted, truly repents, truly flees from the sin, and uh, truly gets right with God. Otherwise, you can clear the demons out, but if the person's heart hasn't changed, if they're still more prone to follow after the devil than they are after God then more demons stronger than the demons that were there before are going to come in. So yes, we're all going to have demons in our lives. Just the, the thing is, do we fight them or do we just let them in? Do we just give in and say it's too much, I'm just going to let them have rain? No, never, never, never. Rebuke them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have you know, constant migraines or if you have just constant pain in your body, if you feel like something's weighing you down like on your back, constant backaches and I mean it's not that you've been working all day it's just you constantly feel nauseous and something weighing you down that may not always be a health issue that may be demonic oppression they want to weigh you down they don't want you to feel like reading your bible they don't want you to feel like you know going to church with your friends they don't want you to go out and do things um, that will advance God's kingdom they want you laid up. They want you watching pornography. They want you, um, you know, doing things that aren't going to profit your life in any way whatsoever, um, that aren't going to profit your walk with God. They want to keep you in the dark, and they don't want you experiencing the many blessings of God's light. So you need to rebuke them this day, whoever's listening to this, and experiences any of the symptoms that I've explained of demonic oppression. Or, you know, if you see dark shadows in your home or you hear voices that aren't there and they're not of God, you know they're not of God. You say in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the one and only true God of heaven and earth, in his holy name I rebuke you in the authority of his holy name and by his precious sinless shed blood on my behalf to reconcile me unto God. I rebuke you evil, wicked, demonic spirits from my home 
in his holy name and from my body. You're not welcome here. You need to go. I love God. I love Jesus. Depart from me. And also, if that doesn't do the trick, which it should, because obviously we need to take authority in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, there is one thing the Catholic Church had right, and that was St. Michael the Archangel. We read about him in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12. We read about him in Revelation chapter 12. Gabriel said, There is no one that stands firmly with me against all these forces of evil except Michael, thy prince, St. Michael the Archangel. And um, centuries and centuries and centuries ago, I want to say maybe even possible over a thousand years ago, uh, there was some pope that had said that, you know, an angel revealed this prayer to him. And I'll tell you, every time I've ever prayed it, um, I felt, you know, demonic activity leave on a dime. I've actually watched um, a couple years ago, there was a paranormal show where uh, there was, you know, they have those those FLIR cams. Um, I forget what the name of them is, uh, the thermal cameras. And, you know, they were in this room where there was supposed to demonic activity and you could see the big you know, red circle on the ceiling, which, you know, would indicate the presence of, you know, something there that you can't see with your own eyes. Um, and so basically, one of the guys who was um, of a faith background of that whatever paranormal crew or whatever, on camera, he was praying the prayer of St. Michael the Archangel. And the minute he said in Jesus' name, Amen, it was amazing. It was with a snap of the fingers, that red area that was on the ceiling just disappeared and it all went back to green or yellow or whatever color the FLIR camera was. It was amazing. It was proof that our God is real, that this book is true, that there are angels, there are demons, and that if you call upon the holy angels, they will expel the demons. And that's what in the book of Daniel, when Gabriel was saying, there's no one who stands with me against these forces of evil, except Michael, that's when Michael had come down to help Gabriel get through to Daniel to bring God's answers to Daniel's prayers to him because Gabriel got held up by the prince of Persia who was a demon, a demon prince. He would not let Gabriel by to get down to Daniel. So Michael, obviously, the warrior angel, had to come fight off the prince of Persia so that Gabriel could get through. And again, you can read all about this in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. And you can read all about Michael fighting the forces of evil, Satan and his fallen angels, in Revelation chapter 12. So, each and every one of us has a guardian angel, but if you need to go to the higher angels, the more powerful protective angels, Michael is your number one bet. He's the one you want to call on for help. And you just pray, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Bear a powerful protection against all the wickedness and snares and evil of the devil. And may God rebuketh him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of Almighty God in heaven, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowleth about my life, my home, and this world, who seek the ruin and the destruction of our souls. In Jesus Christ's holy name, amen. And I'm telling you, friends, with a snap of your fingers, whatever demons were around you will flee. They will be gone. Number one, because you use the holy name of Jesus Christ. They don't like Jesus. They hate Jesus because they know someday he's going to expel them all to an eternal 
fire of hell. But at the same time, if you remember in the New Testament, there were some people who were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and the demons said to them, they said, Look, we know Paul. Whenever we hear him casting us and other demons out in the name of Jesus, we know him. We flee. We know he's God's guy. But you, we don't know you. So why are we going to flee? You can use the name of Jesus all you want. We don't know you. Who are you? Because we don't know if Jesus has given you the same authority as given Paul. So not everybody who says in the name of Jesus, the demons are going to listen to. Because you can have a priest that's molesting kids and raping women that goes in front of a church all day long and says, oh, may the blood of Jesus you know, be upon all of you. May you all be blessed. And may any demons flee in the name of Jesus. Demons aren't going to listen to him. He's not a godly man. He's not truly of God. And I can back that up with Jesus's words where he said, um, you know, many of you in the last days, uh, when you come before me, will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you accursed. I never knew you. So again, there's a lot of fake Christians out there. There's a lot of false prophets out there. There are a lot of people talking in the name of Jesus that don't really know and serve Jesus. And while we may not always be able to decipher the deceivers that they are, the demons, no, they're not working for Jesus. So they can spout his name all they want, but they're not working for Jesus. So um, in that situation, like I said, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know the Holy Bible, if you don't know God and you're listening to this for the first time, and you say, get out demons in the name of Jesus, they may not listen to you because they know you're not really speaking through the authority of Jesus. You don't believe it. In that situation, pray that St. Michael the Archangel prayer. They know Michael. They know he comes down whenever anyone asks for his help. He will come cast out the demons. Then you get in this book. You get to know Jesus. That way, the next time the demons come around, before you even need to call on Michael, you can say, in the authority of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I cast you out. And they will have to listen. They will have to flee. As Jesus said, he has given us power when you become his, his child. And in turn, become a child of our Father in heaven. Because him and the Father are one. When you become a child of the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives you authority over all evil spirits. He said, you will cast out demons in my name and do things even greater than this. So yes, there are angels. We all have our own angel who guides us in the right way, along with the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit. So listen to your angels, follow your angels. And I could give you a, oh, at least a dozen testimonies throughout my life where um, guardian angels have saved me from some bad, bad situations. Uh, two of them were unexplainable, where I should have been dead. I should not be here recording this Bible study, and yet I'm standing here today because miraculously I survived something I should not have survived twice with no scars. There's no other way to explain that but a God in heaven and guardian angels looking out for us. Okay, so we left off at that angel verse, verse 40. He will send his angel with you. And then verse 41 then shall you be clear from this my oath. When you come to my kindred, and if they give not you one, you shall be clear from my oath. And I came this day unto the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, 
If now you do prosper my way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes forth to drink water, I shall say to her, Give me, I pray you, a little water of your pitcher to drink. And she say to me, Both drink you, and I will also draw for your camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord has appointed out for my master's son, Isaac. All right, verse 45, And before I had done speaking my heart, behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down under the well and drew water. And I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray you. And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink, I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her, and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. So again, he did that right away. He basically marked her and said, You are going to be the wife of Isaac, my master's son, because you just told me what I needed to hear. You are from his household directly. Verse 48, again, Eliezer still speaking. I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. And now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto these bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass that when Abraham's servant heard these words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. I may have touched on this in a previous Bible study, but I want to touch on this again. Um, nowadays in this whole liberal society, uh, we've got a lot of godly things that are being transformed into secular things. And what I mean by that is one in particular is that whenever you see someone taking a knee or kneeling, that's not, you know, on a football team and they're not in a huddle, normally you would assume, okay, that guy right there, he's praying, he's praying to God. Um, I Normally do it when I'm before my altar. I'll take a knee to God and I'll say my daily prayers. Um, and if you remember Tim Tebow, football player, used to always take a knee before games and, and during games to pray to the Lord. And they all knew he's praying to God. That's John 3.16 guy. That's Tebow. He's praying. And all the liberal media mocked him and said, oh, that's divisive. You shouldn't be kneeling and praying to God on the football field, blah, blah, blah. But nowadays, with this whole Black Lives Matter garbage, we got that other football quarterback, uh, Kaepernick, who won't respect the national anthem, and he always takes a knee during it in protest. And then in this whole Black Lives Matter protest movement, they've turned taking a knee into basically saying, we're taking a knee to black power. You know, they're telling all white people, you need to take a knee and, and submit to black power. And I'm not going to get into all that right now. I've written many articles about it on the website and in my books. You want to read what I have to say about Black Lives Matter? and Kaepernick and all that other garbage, just uh, go to the website or uh, read my second book, Even More Signs of Our Times. But what I'm getting at here is that 
now if you were outdoors and someone saw you taking a knee, they'd be like, oh, he's part of the Black Lives Matter movement. No, he's not. Uh, most people, you know, pray when they take a knee. But I'll tell you, the original men of God, they didn't always um, take a knee when they, when they prayed to God. They actually, what was called as pros, prostrating. Uh, we find that all of the men of God that knew God closely throughout the Holy Bible did this. We found that when they worshiped God, they bowed their face to the ground, meaning they literally got down on their knees and then put their head to the ground in a way of humbling themselves before the almighty power and glory of God in heaven, saying, you are in heaven, I'm on earth, I am nothing but a creation of dust. And that's why whenever you hear the term repentant dust and ashes, that's basically, you're really humbling yourself, saying, look, I'm, I'm dust and ashes. That's all I really am in the end, this flesh, dust and ashes. Um, so if you ever want to truly get in deep prayer with God, I recommend, and I do it a lot now, when you have a prayer you really need to answer that you feel like God hasn't come through for you on yet, which he will, but if you want it sooner rather than later, telling you, humble yourself. Get down on your face, on the ground, and say, God, this is as humble as I can get. This same ground through which I was made from the dust. I'm putting my face to this ground saying, my life is yours. I'm nothing without you. Without you, I am just dust. So, Lord, do what I ask of you, I beg you. And I'm telling you, if you pray in Jesus' name, he's going to give you that thing sooner rather than later if it's according to his will. Because you'd be praying to him in the same way that all the men of God throughout the Holy Bible, that were true men of God, prayed to him in that way. I mean, you're going to find Moses did that. You're going to find Abraham did that. You're going to find that, I believe even Noah did that. You're going to find that David does that. All the men of God bowed their faces to the ground when they worshiped God, when they prayed to God. So, you know, they weren't, you know, I hate to knock the modern, um, you know, liberal churches, but, you know, you get these big mega churches where, you know, they say, oh, we're coming to worship God and the glory of holiness, and they're up on, on the stage, you know, with all the pyrotechnics and the, the techno lights and all this other stuff going on. And they're bouncing up around on stage, waving their hands around, kicking their legs up in the air. Um, you know, to me, that's not worshiping God. Um, it's really not flailing their arms around. Um, that looks more to me like a Dave Matthews Band concert than it does, um, you know, worship of God. Uh, but to each his own. But if you really, truly want to know what worship of God is in the Bible, just look at how the men of God worshipped him. Yeah, once in a while they sang or, you know, they played an instrument, but they weren't up there jumping around like, like a bunch of goofballs. They were worshiping the Lord by bowing themselves, humbling themselves to the ground, putting their face, their nose to the dust. That's how you worship God. If you remember, Jesus said, the day's coming when the true children of God are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. Truth is is the word of God. Spirit, obviously, you're going to be in an intimate spiritual relationship with God. And to me, a lot of this so-called worship of God we see today in these megachurches is worldly, it's secular, it's no different than some music video you see on MTV or BET. 
Um, to me, that's just not worship of God. But again, to each his own. Uh, so again, if you really need a prayer answer, try humbling yourself by bowing yourself to the ground, your whole body to the ground, face to the ground, like the men of God did in the Holy Bible. Verse uh, 53, And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things, and they did eat and drink. He and the men that were with him, so apparently Eliezer did take a few guys with him, and tarried all night. And they rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few more days, at the least ten. After that she shall go. And he said unto them, I'll hinder me not, seeing the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, You are our sister. Be you the mother of thousands of millions, and let your seed possess the gate of those which hate them. So there, these women, when they blessed, I believe that it wasn't them really speaking this, because what kind of blessing is that? I mean, who just says, like, say, if I'm not going to see my brother again for another couple of years, he's going off somewhere, I'm just going to say, oh, blessed are you, my brother, you're going to be the father of thousands. I mean, who says that? Nobody. So, obviously, the Holy Spirit came into Rebecca's family when they blessed her, because this is a prophecy. She is going to be a mother of thousands, of millions. And her seed will possess the gate of those that hate them, meaning the children of Israel, who are going to be children of Jacob, who is obviously Isaac's son in the future. So this is all prophetical. So this is the spirit of prophecy. Um, they're not just blessing her. They're prophesying, this is going to be your life. You're going to be this great woman. And Rebekah arose at her damsels, and they rode upon the camels, and followed the man, and the servant uh, took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well Laharoi, for he dwelt in the south country. Now obviously, um, they're not going to describe the whole journey back with Eliezer and Rebekah and, and her servants and Eliezer's men. Um, so now we go from verse 61 at Rebekah's place in Mesopotamia to verse 62, where Isaac is in uh, Canaan. So it's like if, basically if you were watching a movie and the Rebekah scene would close out, and then obviously when you cut to the Isaac scene, he's in his place. So um, Isaac wasn't obviously where she's at if you're reading through this really quick. Uh, we're just flashing now to where Isaac's at. So he comes to the well, Laharoi. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the evening tide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel, meaning she got off the camel. For he, she had said unto the servant, Eliezer, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Meaning, this is the guy I told you about. This is the guy I'm bringing you to be his wife. 
Therefore, she took a veil and covered herself. Reason she did that, customs in the Middle East back then, a uh, husband could not see the wife uh, before marriage, so they would veil their faces. And then once they were married, the veil would be lifted, come off. Uh, if you remember in Egypt, uh, when Abraham had told, um, I want to say Abimelech, possibly was his name, It's I don't have it in front of me right now, but if you remember when he deceived the king of Egypt and he said, uh, the Pharaoh, and he said, oh, she's my sister. And then the Pharaoh said, why'd you lie to me? She's not your sister, she's your wife. And what he did was he put a veil on Sarah, Abraham's wife, and said, now everybody's going to know she's with you, you know, because she's got a veil on, meaning she's going to be a bride. And that's why all the brides today wear veils. Okay, and it's because it's descended from that old Jewish custom. Uh, verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So, Abraham knew that his son was pretty tore up over uh, Sarah's, Sarah's death. I'm sure they were pretty close. Just like we're going to find that Jacob, another man of God, was very, very close with his mother. So it's no coincidence I'm a mama's boy too. And I would venture to say that most men of God are. So he was very grieved over his mother's passing. So that's why I think immediately after Sarah passed, Abraham said, man, I got to bring him somebody to love him. I got to get him a wife. And that's why we jump right into this story here. But one thing that I really wanted to touch on that I had heard from one of my favorite Bible teachers, Chuck Missler, that's very, very interesting. And I always talk about the correlations between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that old line where the New Testament um, is the Old Testament revealed and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, meaning that a lot of stuff you find in the Old Testament is basically a foreshadow of what we're going to see in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. Things he's going to do were foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And I've already given you a lot of examples of that in the book of Genesis, but there's one more that I learned about through Chuck Missler that I haven't really heard taught by anyone else, but it's very interesting. Okay, so now Isaac, we finally find him again here in this chapter um, since we last saw him on the mount with Abraham. Remember when Abraham was going to sacrifice him and God said, no, no, don't sacrifice him, I'll provide the sacrifice. Um, and I explained to you how that same mountain where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, was the same mountain on which Jesus Christ was crucified on Golgotha, Calvary as we know it, um, in which God gave his only son. Basically, I was saying in place of Isaac. So God said to Abraham, you don't need to sacrifice your son because I'm going to provide the lamb. God actually used the word the lamb in the book of Genesis. I'll provide the lamb. And he did. He sent his son, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the lamb of God. And so Christ died where Isaac should have, but didn't, because God wouldn't allow it. Okay, there's another <clears throat> foreshadow of Jesus Christ with Isaac, because, again, we haven't seen Isaac or heard him doing anything since the top of the mountain with Abraham. 
it's really cool because when you actually read the text and get deep in the text, you notice a lot of things you never noticed before. So I want you to jump back to chapter, I want to say 22, was it? Let's see. I believe it is chapter 22 is where we find Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And then if you go to verse 19. Now, earlier in the chapter of 22, we read that Abraham and Isaac went up to the mount. The two of them went up on the mount and Abraham's servants stayed behind. Now, in verse 19 of chapter 22... It says, so Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. Okay. Read it again. Abraham returned unto his young men. Abraham returned. How come it didn't say Abraham and his son Isaac returned? When earlier in the chapter, it clearly said Abraham and Isaac went up the hill. So why did only Abraham come down? Now, it's possible that maybe just you know, the author here just said it's obvious if Abraham came down, obviously Isaac came down with him. He's not going to leave him up there. But I agree with Missler that it's prophetical, that it's foreshadowing Jesus because, all right, Isaac was on the mountain the last time we saw him as the potential sacrifice, correct? Okay. Now, the next time we see Isaac, he is meeting his wife. Now, those of you who know Bible prophecy, you probably just had a light bulb go out in your head, but if not, I'll explain it to you. Okay. When Jesus Christ returns to earth, it's to his bride, the church. Anyone who knows the New Testament of the Bible knows that terminology, knows that, that the church is known as his bride. He's known as a bridegroom. So, when he comes, he comes for his church, his bride. And then obviously there's the marriage feast, marriage supper of the Lamb, and and we are all united to him as his bride forevermore, married unto Jesus, just as Israel was married unto Yahweh. Um, so get that in your mind. Jesus, when he comes back, it's for his bride. It's for his church, his bride. Now, the last time when he left earth physically in a physical body was on Calvary's cross. The Mount of Golgotha, place of the skull, where he was crucified. As a human being on earth, that was where he left the earth. Now, obviously, he came back down spiritually in the resurrection and appeared unto the disciples and unto many believers. But... His physical body, through which Mary bore through her womb, that went into the tomb after he died on Calvary's cross. On that same mountain, get it, where Isaac was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. The last place we saw Isaac was on that mount where Jesus was crucified. Now, when do we see Isaac again? When he is being united to his wife. So, is that meant to be there in the Bible like that? Is it meant to be that foreshadowing of Jesus Christ? I don't know. But it's so interesting when you really get down and think about it, the similarities between 
Isaac, and Jesus, and a foreshadowing that was in the Bible thousands of years before the New Testament was ever written. Just more proof that Jesus Christ fulfilled even more prophecies of the Messiah than most even know about. Because there are certain scholars who say, okay, there's so many prophecies of the Messiah in the Holy Bible. I wonder if they count that one. The one where Isaac was last seen on the mount, where he was going to be sacrificed. And then he's not seen again until he's united with his bride. That'll do it. Next time, Genesis chapter 25, have one of my favorite chapters of the entire Holy Bible. Not just of the book of Genesis, the entire Holy Bible, because three of the most important men in the history of the Bible, in the history of the world, the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all their lives are going to be intertwined in the coming chapter. We are going to read about all three generations of the forefathers of Israel in one chapter. So don't miss it. Tune in next time. God bless y'all.